0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. And you think if the last Sunday sermon was tough, today is going to be even harder. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your father perfect, but just as your father in heaven is perfect. Again, Jesus is challenging us as he continues to raise the standard of living for the Christian and those who are citizens, or say they're citizens of his kingdom. And in this text, he stresses upon the duty to love the unlovely. We have to love the unlovely. To love our enemies. And he's not making a suggestion here. It's a command. You know, but oftentimes, and I think this is the, one of the most areas that we as Christians fail upon because we're all looking like angels, right, until somebody... Crosses our path and we're like the transformers. Transformed to something else. And Jesus here gives us a sixth illustration and last illustration where he is contrasting their false righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes to the true righteousness of God. And Jesus is contrasting their kind of love with God's love. So what's the teaching in the Old Testament? Again, we're just going to look at what the Old Testament teaches. We're going to look at the perversion of the traditional teaching, and we're going to look at what Jesus is saying, his perspective. So in verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So if it was said, where did that come from? Well, they did get that from the Old Testament, but you shall love your neighbor is the only phrase that they took. Look at Leviticus 19.18. He says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And you know, my wife told me you have too many scriptures as is, So, but I'm not going to add these. This, this love your neighbor as yourself is repeated all over the Bible. You know, Matthew 19, 22, Mark, it's, it's everywhere. Love your neighbor as yourself. And James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 2, verse 8, says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, according to the Scripture, not traditional teachings, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. And you see, love for others and showing this sympathetic concern and actual care for other people has always been God's standard for his people. And Deuteronomy, the Israelites, they were commanded, if their fellow countrymen loses an ox or anything like that, or they see something strange, they are to return it to its owner. They are to do good. Um, and if their animal out in the farm has just collapsed or got injured, they are to go there and to help that person. And Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4, says, you shall... Not see your neighbor's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourselves from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. So if you see it's happening, you go and direct and you help him. And if your brother is near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until the brother seeks it. Then she'll restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, just in case, you know, the ox and the sheep wasn't enough. So he throws in the donkey. And then he says, then you should do the same with his garment. And then with any lost thing of your neighbor's, which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his uh, ox fall down along the road and hide yourselves from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. So if you see, you can't just look the other way. you got to go help your brother. But not only he commanded that to do to their brother's, you know, even if you don't know who they are, you see a donkey or an ox or anything like that, you go take it to your house, you pay for the lodging, you pay for the food until the owner is found, and then you say, here it is, here's your thing, take it back to them. But, so that's the general principle kind of lost and found. But God's people were also commanded to do the same favors for their enemies, right? Look at verses 4 to 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey one of the one who hates you lying under its burden, you would refrain from helping him. You should surely help him with it. So if somebody hates you, they're your enemy, and you see them struggling, you've got to go do the same thing. You know, what's our natural reaction all oh, your animal fell down, well, I hope it dies and you stand there looking I hope you know his wife is struggling to help him and you're just standing on the side right? Let them take care of it. they deserve it. But the standard of the Word of God never changes. And the enemy that speaks of here in Exodus in Matthew in Exodus 23, is not some soldier met on a battlefield or anything like that? It talks about our individual, regular contacts with people that we come on a daily basis. And we can also see the scope of what a neighbor means in the Old Testament when the uh, Israelites were in Egypt. Israelites were asked to ask the Egyptians for silver and gold. Remember that story when they were walking out of Egypt? You say, "Go ask?" all those things for silver, gold, all those things. But look how it puts it down in Exodus it is It says, Speak now in hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor, and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. So you see, when they were in Egypt, the Egyptians were considered their neighbors. And when they're in their own land, and if a native comes in, it's also their neighbor. So anywhere you go, people are surrounded, they're your neighbors. Why? Because Exodus 12:49 says, One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So in the fullest sense, an Israelite's neighbor was anyone in need that he might come across in his daily life, daily living. Let me show you something very interesting, at least for me, and I'll tell you why. Uh, It's about Job. Look at Job 31, verses 29-30. Job says, If I have rejoiced in the destruction of him who hated me, or lifted myself up when the evil found him, indeed I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. So what he's saying here is Job didn't, nothing himself to harm his enemies or did not rejoice when harm came to them from any other source. In other words, he didn't do anything. He didn't, you know, say that you deserve this or whatever. But not only that, Job did more than simply refrain from repaying evil from evil. He gave them help. Look at Job 31, 31 verses 31 and 32 it says, If men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been satisfied with his, this, his meat? But no sojourner had lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. He opened his house to anyone that's passing by regardless. Nobody was sleeping on the street. He fed them. He gave them lodging. And the reason I said it was interesting because, folks, Job lived hundreds of years before God gave his written law to Moses. But yet... At that time, God's standard of righteousness always included mercy, kindness, loving care for others, and that's the trait that characterized Job, didn't it? In Job 1.1, we, we read, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was what, blameless and upright, and the one who feared God and shunned evil. And David, for example, we know he had lots of enemies, right? In the battlefield, then Absalom, his son was also an enemy. But look what it says in Psalm 7, verses 4 through 5. If I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Because David knew... It was wrong to do evil against someone who had wronged him. In Psalm 32, he said, they reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. So here's people. He's doing good to them, right? But they're returning evil for good. What's his reaction? Let's continue reading in verse 13. He says, but as for me, even though they're doing that, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavenly as one who mourns over his mother. So what is he doing? They're repaying him evil for good. But when the enemy had issues or they struggled with something, If you look at it, it says, I paste as my friend, brother, someone who mourns over his mother. Those are the closest to us. He's treating them like the ones we typically love. And then in verse 15, he said, by my adversary, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me, and it did not cease. So David grieved and prayed over his enemies when they were sick and need, despite the fact they were repaying him evil for good. And remember the opportunities David had to kill Saul? Wasn't Saul one of his enemies? We would say. Look at first Samuel chapter 24, verses 4 through 7. It says, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day when the Lord said to you, Behold, will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may as he seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And when he said to his men, Lord forbid that I shall do anything to my master, the Lord anointed to stretch out my hand against them, seeing he is anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up, From the cave and went on his way. So David would not harm Saul. He was God's anointed, even though he was his enemy. And not only that, he would not let any one of his companions, his group, hurt him either. And what's interesting in verse 5, we even read, even cutting off the, the piece of the rope, he felt some guilt. His heart was troubled that he even did that. And folks, David had every human reason to hate Saul, didn't he? Chasing him, trying to kill him. But David refused to return evil for evil. Another occasion David became a king and, you know, there was a relative of Saul named Shimei, and he was throwing rocks at him. He wanted to kill him. He was cursing at him. What was David's reaction? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 5 through 10, and then when the king came to Beharum, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name is Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. Now, Matthew says, Bless those who curse you. And then in verse 6, he threw stones at David and all the servants of the king David, and all the people, that mighty men that was on his right hand and on his left hand. So you can imagine the riding on horses. There's people on the right hand, on the left hand, David's in the middle. He's throwing rocks at him, obviously trying to get him good, so you know, maybe kill him. And he said this the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom unto the hand of Absalom, your son. So remember the evil son that started the revolution. And then he says, so you are caught up in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. He says, you deserve everything that's happening to you right now. You're a bloodthirsty man. That's why this is happening. God's taken your kingdom away, given it to your son. And then Abishai, the son of Zerai, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord? And the king, please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I do to you, the sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse. Because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? The king had every right to kill him. Did you know that? Insult to the king. He had the right to kill him on the spot. But David's devotion to this higher law prevented him. And it's amazing humility. Think about it. This is the king. And he still gave him a benefit of the doubt. And the reason I say that, because he suggested to his men, well, maybe he's even acting on the behalf of the Lord, right? But he's laughing at David. He's rejoicing. But what does the Scripture teach us when that's happening with our enemy? Proverbs twenty-four seventeen says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and displeases him, and he will turn away his wrath from him. So don't be happy when something you happen to your enemy or somebody you know you're at odds with and you're like that's they deserve that. Don't ever do that. Cuz God may take away his wrath and place it on you. In Proverbs 24:29 says, "Do not say I'll do to him just as he's done to me. I will render to the man according to his work." So you see the scripture tells us what not to do with our enemies, but it also tells us what to do, right? And what do we do? If you look at Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-one, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And throughout the Old Testament, the standard for God's people has never changed. And what's that standard? Treat others. Right, the golden rule. Treat others like you would like to be treated. Treat them as you would treat yourselves. So that's the Old Testament teaching. Well, what did the rabbis teach? How did they pervert this? Well, look again. When Jesus says in verse 43, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, the devil's perversion, the Satan's perversion truth almost all the time has to touch a lie in order for it to sound legit you know a lie intersects with the truth half a truth to make it more believable doesn't that sound legit especially if it's spoken in christianese language right i mean this sounds legit you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy that sounds good it sounds fair right right everybody awake who thinks that sounds fair But when you can't keep the standard of God and what he requires, what do we do? We try to change it, right? We add a few things, we subtract, we start doing math, right? I heard of an accounting firm that was hiring some accountants, and they were an elite firm. And the first candidate walks in, his resume is very polished, had very good education, had all the right initials under his name. And the first question they asked him said, can you tell us what 2 plus 2 is? He felt kind of insulted. He said, are you serious? Can you ask me another question? I said, no. Before we go on, can you tell us what 2 plus 2 is? He got angry and said, maybe I shouldn't even work here. The answer is 2, but I'm walking out. They said, okay. (laughs) Then the next one comes in, and they asked him the same question. What's 2 plus 2? Thinks it's a silly question, but he says four. I said, thank you for your time. You know, we'll pursue other candidates, and if anything, you'll hear from us. The third accountant walks in, and he must have been a Pharisee. And they say, well, we're going to ask you the same question we ask everybody else. The first question is, what is two plus two? And the reason I say this accountant was a Pharisee, because he said, what do you want it to be? And that's what the Pharisees were doing here, right? They're reading it, and they're saying, well, we can't keep it. What, what do we want it to be? Let's change it around a little bit. You see, when people don't like the standard of God's righteousness, they're trying to take it down to the lever where they can keep it and feel good about themselves. But a lie must include some of the truth in here. And as I already indicated, the only truth they had in there, it said, you shall love your neighbor. As we read in Leviticus 19, 18, it's clearly there. But they had perverted the Old Testament teaching, as I say, by doing some accounting work, by subtracting the adding. So, what did they subtract here? Anybody notice? They subtracted the phrase, as yourself. It says, love your neighbor but they subtracted as yourself. They kept part of that away because it wouldn't fit into their self-righteousness. It would be inconceivable that they should care for another person as much as they cared for themselves, right? And folks, it's not like they didn't know that that was written in Leviticus, because when Jesus questioned them in other places about this, they answered correctly. Look at Mark twelve thirty two and 33. So the scribe said to him, speaking to Jesus, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole burnt offering and sacrifices. So they knew it was written there because... They know who they're speaking with, so they had better answer correctly, right? And look at 10.26 in Luke. It said, he said to him, what's written in the law? Jesus was speaking to a certain lawyer, a scribe. What's your reading of it? And look how he answers. So he answered and said, you shall love Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So what he did here is he quoted Deuteronomy 6.5, just says you shall love the Lord with God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he li- quoted Leviticus 19.18, which we read already. It says, love the neighbor as yourself. So you need to understand that the subtraction of love others as yourself is not a oopsie-daisy. They knew about it, but they took it out because it didn't fit their agenda. The words of the Scripture's folks were fully known, but they were partially taught and partially kept. And the scribes and the Pharisees, folks, they loved themselves. Did you know that? We'll get to that in the next chapter, but let me give you a first verses in chapter 6, verse 2. It says, when they, you know, they blow the trumpet when they do good deeds. Why? In the streets, that they may have glory for men. They're looking for recognition. They like it. In verse 5, it says, for they love to pray, standing in synagogues on the corners of the street to be seen by men, to see how holy they are and so forth, how religious they are. In verse 16, it says, they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. And in Luke 11, uh, verse 43 says, they love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So they go to a party or so forth. They want to be recognized. They love it. They love themselves. So there's no way they're going to love somebody else the way they love themselves. And you know, when we're reading this, we're probably thinking, oh, how bad the Pharisees. But the thing is, you love yourself too. You love you, right? Whose teeth you brush this morning? Hair you comb? Don't know about the wardrobe, but whatever. We're concerned about ourselves. You love yourself. Is this natural? But love, folks, is not necessarily an emotion. It means to serve the needs. And you serve your needs very well, don't you? Before anybody else's, don't you? It's that kind of a personal or permanent love that we have for ourselves. Whenever you have an interest, right, what do you try to do? You try to fulfill it if you're hungry, you feed yourself, right? If you have a want, you try to supply it. If you have some kind of desire, you try to fulfill it. I mean, you're really working on yourself for you, right? Number one employee. Just the way life goes. We're concerned about our own welfare, our own comfort, our own safety, our own interest, our own health, you know, physical, spiritual, all those things. But the standard that God gives his people was supernatural. It's not a natural love. And you see, it rubbed them the wrong way. So they removed it because they could not live too up to it in their own power. But not only that, they went a little bit further and they kind of narrowed down what a neighbor is. As we saw, the neighbor in the Old Testament is anybody that's really around you, right? Even the enemies in Egypt were considered uh, neighbors, but they kind of said, "Well, all these tax collectors, these sinners, prostitutes, you know, the, the people that, you know outwardly are demonstrating that they're sinners, and tax collectors putting burden on their own people, they sold out to Rome, criminals, swindlers. they're not our neighbors. You know, in Luke 18:11, they said, the Pharisee student prayed. With himself and God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this this tax collector. So all people were enemies, and they, frankly, you know, that's one of the things that disgusted them, wasn't it? When uh, Jesus ate with the sinners and tax collectors, they accused him of it. How can how can he be with those people? They're enemies of God's law. And they accused him of that in Matthew 9.11. says, And the Pharisees saw it. They said to his disciple, What does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the, even that restrictions on those kind of neighbors, they kind of went a little further. Not those sinners that are sinning openly where you can see it, but they also try to separate themselves from some of the common folks. So if you didn't agree with them, You didn't like what they eat, you didn't like what they drink, you didn't like their opinions, you're their enemy. They disregard you, even though you're not sinning outwardly or whatever, you're just common folks. And look what it says in John 7, verse 48 and 49. Jesus is preaching and they say, have you, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? So they're asking the crowd. Jesus is preaching and it says, hey, they interrupt, say, hey, have any of us believed in him? You should be following us. And then here's how they say reparated himself. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. All you people are going to hell. You don't know the law. So therefore you're our enemies. We're the representatives of God's law. Our opinion matters. Yours doesn't. And we haven't believed in this Jesus. So anyone that follows Jesus is a heretic. So they kind of define it. So if you can define the word neighbor, right, to your wife and three friends, you can just hate the whole world. can't you? So there's that perversion of subtraction. Obviously, they loved math because they did that a lot. But then they added something, and they added hate your enemy. Now, as we typically go back to the Old Testament and see where they got that from, do you know where that got that from? Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible it tells you to hate your enemy. Did you know that? Nowhere. So how does they justify it? Because it's nowhere in the Bible. It doesn't come from the Bible, but it comes naturally from the heart, doesn't it? Naturally from our human heart. And there's nothing as natural, easy, and sinful just loving those who love us and hating those that we don't like. without saying the Gentiles were, considered, were not considered neighbors, right? And how do they justify this? Well, one of the excuses they used is, remember when they were going into the land from Egypt to the uh, land of Palestine? <laughs> Their forefathers in Joshua, they had all these battles where they had to uh, drive out the Canaanites, Moabites, all these pagan people. They conquered and possessed the promised land. But those people that lived there in the land at that time, you have to understand, were most vile, corrupt people known in history. They're cruel. They sacrificed their own children and so forth. And if you can say they were a cancer to society. And the reason God's people were going in there and battling, got got rid of them, is for their own good, to prevent spiritual corruption. And, you know, in his book, uh, The cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, and he says, "The wars of Israel, all the wars that happen in Israel, God's wars, condemn. It is not this enmity which Jesus condemns for them, for then he would have condemned the whole history of God's dealing with His people. On the contrary, he affirms the old covenant. So God, Israel's harsh dealing with these people, it was just the instrument of God's judgment." God's righteousness. But the teaching the scribes and the Pharisees, they use that. Hey, our God hated those people, so we can hate the Gentiles, the outsiders. We can destroy them. We're better than everybody else. But the thing is, that's God's judgment. It does not give you the right to do that because you're not God. And the other one is they use David. David. Look at Psalm 69, verse 22, 24. It says, he's talking about his enemies. and said, let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see. And make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Well, wait a minute. What's going on, David? We just read earlier he wouldn't repay evil for evil, right? But now he's saying... These are the enemies. Make sure their eyes go dark and they don't see, go, they go blind, they go sick, and so forth. So they use that, but what you need to understand this was not the words of David to present a personal vendetta against these people and blindness and justice. The reason he said that, the answer is in verse nine, which they totally ignored why did David say these things? Well, if you read in verse 9, it says, because the zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So what was, remember we talked about briefly last Sunday, that righteous anger, right? What, what's he mad about? Because somebody's personal injury or insult to him? No, because what they've done to God's house. And remember when Jesus made a whipping cord and so forth, and Rushed all those money exchangers out of the temple, cleaned the temple. That was righteous indignation. And when that was happening, when Jesus was doing that, disciples remembered something from the scripture. And John 2.17 says, Then his disciples remembered it was written, What? Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's what, that's what the problem is. David and Jesus shared same righteous indignation. So this is not a justification to hate your enemies. But then the best one comes in Psalm 139, in verse 22. Look at what David says about his enemies. I hate them with the perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. I hate them. I count them my enemies. But again, they skipped the three verses. They didn't continue reading. In verse 23 it says... Search me, O God, and know thy my heart. Try me, and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. In other words, do you see that word perfect? I hate them with the perfect hate, Father, because of what they're doing to you. But search my heart. If there's anything that there's a personal vendetta or anything like that, if it's show me, Lead me to the way of everlasting because there is no personal motive, but show me if there is. Because the motive is His glory, not mine. But Pharisees, on contrast, knew nothing about righteous indignation or anything like that. It was all personal hatred because their love was only for self. And it's our human nature to always repay evil for evil, right? Isn't it? But the word God insists this all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament, as Paul wrote to the first Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 15, he says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. To anyone, right? That includes everybody. But always pursue what is good both for yourself and for all. So we see that Old Testament taught your neighbor, you've got to love him as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Everybody's around you wherever you go. Where I go to Costco and those people stop right in front of me and don't get out of the way, they're my neighbors. Go to Myers; those people are my neighbors. So, But the perversion was we're going to subtract yourself because we can't love everybody like we love ourselves. And then we're going to add hate your enemy and we're going to define a little bit who our neighbor is. It's everybody that's on our side. So if you don't agree with us on anything, you're, you're, you're our enemy, right? And that's kind of what's happening in our country today. If you're not with us, that means you're against us. And now look what Jesus is saying. In Matthew 5, verses 48 to 48, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain in the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? What do you, what's your religion got more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father is perfect, and heaven is perfect. So in these verses, five ascending statements, Jesus explains the kind of love God has always required. Love your enemies. Matthew 5:44, "I say to you, love your enemies." Now, when he said that, you know, we've been going through chapter five, and some of the things said it was shocking. But then he says this. Can you imagine what was going through their minds? You know, they felt they had a religious duty to hate the enemies. That was part of their righteousness because they were separate from everybody else. They were better. And now he's saying you're to love your enemies. So that's one thing. But all throughout the fives, you know, you heard it say, but I say to you, you know, I think one of the things that maybe irritated them too he always cites himself as the authority, right? Not even Moses or anything like that, but all six examples that we're reading about, he says, you have heard it being taught this way, but I say to you, not what the law really teaches or what Moses meant, It says, but what I say, but my own authority, I declare that all these people are false teachers, they have perverted God's revealed truth, my truth is the truth, and he says you should love your enemies. And as we read in the Old Testament, that's what it meant. And Jesus illustrated the point of a parable of a good Samaritan. I think we're all familiar with the story. I'm not going to go through all the verses, but you know they're talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and one of the lawyers asks, well, he wants to justify himself. He knows who his neighbor is, but he just plays kind of dumb and says, Jesus, in verse 29 of Luke 10, wanting to justify him, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus shares a story. He says, hey, there was a certain man, fell on the road of thieves, right? A priest walks by, holy representation, doesn't do anything. A Levite walks by doesn't do anything. And here comes this Samaritan. He's a half-breed, right? They, they were considered enemies. And he takes care of this person, bandages him up, takes him to a hotel, pays for everything, and then tells the clerk, hey, on my way back, if anything costs you more, I will cover it. And then in Luke 10, after telling the story, he asked this question, so which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Who's his neighbor? The two religious people or this Samaritan, a half-breed? Well, in verse 37, he answers and says, He who showed mercy on him. And look what Jesus says. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Right? Go and do likewise. You know who your neighbor is. Because true love is need-oriented. You know, the Good Samaritan, again, demonstrated the great love. Look what he did. He sacrificed his time. I'm sure he was going somewhere, right? He's not just going to go down the valley, especially that road, if he had no point of going somewhere. So he sacrificed his own convenience, his own safety, his resources, money, to meet somebody's other's desperate need. And the love that it speaks here and which is most spoken in the New Testament, is the agape love. It's the agape love. It's the power to love those whom we do not like or those who do not like us. It's more of a determination of the mind for those who hurt us and injure us. I'm going to love you no matter what you do. That's that love. Agape love is for the love for the unlovely. And remember, we are a long time ago, not long time ago, I can't remember how long ago, but we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Love like Jesus. And love had 15 characteristics there, and they were all a verb form, meaning it does something. It's best described, but what it does. Above all, agape love is the love that God is. Agape love is the God uh, the, he demonstrates that love. And not only that, God is the only one that can give you that love. Look at with me in First John chapter four verse seven. Says, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God." In Romans five eight, he says, "God demonstrates His love towards us. How? When we were sinners, He died for us. When we were enemies, He still died for us. That's that agape love. And because of His love, we can love the same way." In 1 John chapter 4, verses 11-12 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and He loves, has been perfected in us. So love's question is never who to love, because we are to love everybody, but only how to love most helpfully. We're not to love merely on terms of feeling, but in service. You see, God's love embraces the entire world, right? John 3, 16, God loved the world, everybody. And he loved each of us while we were still sinners. We were still his enemies, as we read in Romans. And the same way, we are not to be enemies of those who are enemies to us. From their perspective, we might be an enemy, but we're not to be an enemy to our neighbors. And what does he tell us to do? The first thing is pray for him. It's a prayerful love. If you look in verse 44, it says, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You see, persecution is often the world's response to God's truth, isn't it? That's what the world hates. It hates coming to the light. And the Lord assured us that just as he was persecuted, we will be. Right? In 15, John 15, verse 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You see, godly living, holy living, has a way of irritating wicked people. And we become the source of their rebuke and conviction. This is why the lost people oftentimes lash out at Christians. Right? And Proverbs 29 27 says, And he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. The wicked hate the lifestyle of the righteous people. And this command for us to pray for our persecuting people, you see, this is a command everybody, a faithful servant, has an opportunity to carry out. And what do I mean by that? Because. If you're a faithful servant, if you're a faithful Christian, you will be persecuted. You will be. Because Jesus taught that every disciple who makes his faith known, you're going to have to pay a price. You'll never be a Christian and getting along with the world, folks. If you're saying, I'm not receiving any, well, you either just wait, or maybe you're going in the same direction the world's going. But you will be persecuted for your faith. And when that happens, number one, you pray for them. And the best way to have the right attitude is to possess this agape love. Do you remember Stephen when he was getting stoned? Look at Acts 7.60. He preached the righteousness of God. It irritated people, so they want to stone them. And he prays. He says, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. And the best illustration is Jesus himself, the Son of God in flesh, he was crucified. He's hanging on the cross. And look what he says. They're spitting at his face. They whipped him. They pulled his beard. They did all kinds of things, right? But in Luke 23, 34, it says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do, and divided his garments and cast lots. I think it would be great if we just began to pray for those who are set against us. Nothing makes us love our enemies as much as praying for them, folks. And what should we be praying for? If we saw with Stephen and Jesus, what are we? What are they praying for? Make sure they have a good lifestyle. Make sure they're driving a Cadillac, have a four-bedroom home. No, they're praying that they be redeemed. Do not charge their sin against them. Jesus praying for forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. So we may see or sense wickedness, unfairness, ungodliness, or hatred towards us. And folks, I could say we could not possibly love them for what they are. But we must love them because who they are. They're sinners fallen from the image of God and need God's forgiveness, right? Lest we forget. Every saint was a sinner before, wasn't it? So, a question we can ask how is our prayer life when it comes to those who are attacking us? And, folks, we are to pray for them that they will, as we have done, seek forgiveness and grace. And folks, persecution may not always come from the unbelieving world. Christians do the same thing. Christians cause other Christians great trouble. And the first step toward healing is the broken relationship is also prayer. So whoever is persecuting you or has something against you, they should be on your prayer list. And we behave that way if we Do what God requires us to do if we're praying for our enemies. Jesus says we're becoming like Him, like Father, like Son. If you look at verse 45, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So, you see, what this verse tells us, even those that do not have a personal relationship with God still benefit from God. Do you see that? He pours out His blessing on the good, on the evil, and our world is filled with evil, but yet the sun rises each day. God sends rain upon the earth, and good farmer, bad farmer, doesn't matter. And not because we earned it, but because He's revealing that agape love for us. To love our enemies, to pray for our persecutors shows that we are sons of the father who's in heaven isn't that what john meant when he meant uh, wrote 13 and verse 35 says by this all will know that you are my disciples how If you love one another but if we're acting like the pharisees here's a verse for us in first john 4 20 if someone says i love god which they did and hates his brother he's a liar for he does not love his brother whom he has seen and love the God who he has not seen. So those who are God's children should show same love, care to what God shows. He causes his sunrise and the good and the evil. But then, you know, he kind of punches him in the face in the beginning, saying you're doing addition, subtraction, you're being some accountants. And then he kind of simmers it down. And now he's punching them again. Look at verses 46, 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, do you not do more than others? Do not even the tax collector do so? So, one of the things that Pharisees were completely 100% certain they were better than everybody else. But Jesus again cuts to their hypocrisy and says, well, wait a minute. Your kind of love is self-centered love. Isn't that what you have in common with the tax collectors? With the Gentiles, the pagans? Jesus is saying, what does your system have more than theirs? What makes you different? You don't have anything more than what the tax collectors and pagans have. You love those who love you, the same type of love you and the tax collectors demonstrate. Your righteousness is no better than theirs. The citizens of God's kingdom are to have a much higher standard than the rest of the world. That's how we are to be different. If we look like the world, act like the world, what do we have to offer the world? Nothing. But how can we demonstrate this love? Because... We don't just love our neighbors and hate our enemies. We actually love our enemies. and Why? Because God has given us the power to do that. He gave us the ability, if you're a son of God, you know you have it through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. And unfortunately, many Christians do not do this. We're just like everybody else. So why would they want to come to church? We do the same thing, we act the same way, we say the same things, we curse people, we return evil for evil. What, what makes you different? Why am I going to get up early, and especially during the wintertime, and come to Grace Fellowship? So the challenge of the Lord Jesus Christ is, go that second mile. We can't live like the world lives. And when it comes to our enemies, we are to do what the world doesn't. What? Love them. And we already studied Matthew 5.16. He says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. Right? No. Glorify your Father in heaven. See that? There's something supernatural about a Christian. And the master expects his disciples same conduct that can be only explained by the supernatural. And that's why he says, be like your Father in heaven. Look at verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if really, if you look at that verse, that's the sum of all, Sermon amount, everything that Jesus teaches. In fact, all he teaches in the scriptures are in those words. Be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's the purpose of salvation? What's the goal of the gospel? What's the great earning of God in his heart? for all men to be like him, to become like him. Because the heavenly father, you see, is the standard. And as we read in verse 45, for the sons of the father, those people, you are to be perfect if you're the son of, of God. You're to be perfect just as your father. And this perfection is absolute perfection. It's impossible in man's own power. So really, Jesus is demanding impossible. Isn't it? Sometimes even his disciples question him. If you look at Matthew 19, 25, verse 26, when the disciples heard of it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who can then be saved? you got all these requirements. Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, when God demands something from us or gives us a command, he provides the power to accomplish it. He does. He's not going to ask you something you can't do. So everybody in here who accepted Lord Jesus Christ, their personal Lord and Savior, have this capability. You just need to work it out. It's in you. And sometimes we use our own righteousness, but even the, if you took, I don't know how many people lived on this earth till the beginning of time, I don't know, just say 300 billion, right? If you take the best qualities of each of those persons and you combine them into one person, right? You take only the best ones, not the bad qualities, but of all the people that ever lived on this planet earth, you take all the good qualities and you put it in one that person, that one person will have to kneel down in front of God and beg for forgiveness, that's God's standards. That's his righteousness. Because why? Because what's our righteousness? Isaiah 64, 6 says this. But we are all a clean, like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousness are like the filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So how is it possible to be perfect? We are to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. In Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There's only one way to become perfect, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when Christ imputes his righteousness onto you. And then there begins this slow process of sanctification with God, works on us, conforms us to his image, and that should be goal of every believer. And we've seen in this chapter chapter five, as we concluded, we are to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees who are considered the most religious people. We're to have higher standard than that. And the impossible becomes possible for those who trust in Christ. So as we read this, there's a twofold message: if you haven't made your peace with Christ or accept Him as Lord and Savior, you're a sinner, you need to repent, and you need forgiveness that only can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who have accepted Christ, because they were disciples there and the other ones that are following Jesus, who be- believed in Him, committed their lives to Him, and we're forgiven for our lack of love, right? And those of us who have given the power, but yet we failed to love, there's a message for us. He's saying you've been forgiven. You've been given the capacity to love like Jesus. And what did he tell that Pharisee? Go and do likewise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. For